This is Womb, the podcast that celebrates the power of rebirth. I'm your host, Nova Cobbin, and on this show, we'll hear from amazing women who dared to rediscover who they are. Women who reignited long-lost passions, took bold leaps of faith, and reimagined their futures in ways they never thought possible. Each week, we'll be inspired by the stories of strength, courage, and resilience. Stories that remind us it's never too late to start anew. There are always second chances, new beginnings, and opportunities for rebirth. So join us as we explore the journeys of phenomenal women who reinvented themselves and created the lives they've always dreamed of. Welcome to Womb Rebirth. Let's go. Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of Room the Rebirth. Room. Blah, blah, blah. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Womb the Rebirth podcast. I am here today with Katie Prattley. Um, Katie, really lovely to have you on the show. Welcome. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Um, Okay, so I have been a teacher for 20 years and I'm also a parent and youth coach. So I like to say that I help parents have a better relationship with themselves and their kids and help kids have a better relationship with themselves as well. Amazing. And do you have children yourself? I have a seven-year-old boy, which Mm -hmm. is actually part of my rebirth story that we can uh, go into. Yeah. Fantastic. And really important work as well that you do. I'm excited to hear about it. Um, For those of you who don't know, I used to be a primary school teacher for a while as well. Um, So I am deeply passionate about the kind of education system, what's working, what's not working. Um, and how we support our children and our and our teenagers and beyond. So, Katie, where would you like us to start on your rebirth story? Oh, where would I start? I think as part of as part of what I do and what brought me to what I do is um, my own history. So I had what might be classed as a quite a chaotic and turbulent upbringing. It was all pretty straightforward, very, um, I suppose you call it a very middle-class upbringing till my parents divorced. It's a very acrimonious divorce. Um, and that's where everything went a bit downhill and it culminated in me um, being taken into care when I was 14. I slept on my friend's floor for a few months and then went into a foster home. And at 16, in those days, uh, we're talking the mid nineties, in the foster care system then, once you were 16, you were classed as an adult. And although you had a caseworker, you were pretty much on your own. Now that's the surface level, but what was what had gone on underneath, um, and I think when you have, uh, the clash was my maternal relationship. Uh, and now I think we would classify it, in my opinion, for legal reasons. Um, I think that she's got uh, narcissistic, um personality disorder and I think when you grow up with that kind of parent that's your norm so you're not really aware of what you are being I suppose the coach in me would say programmed with what beliefs are being stitched into me and it wasn't until much later in my life that I started to become aware that the way that I saw the world and certainly saw myself um didn't really align with the norm of how everyone else saw the world and saw themselves And this was particularly in my 20s when the struggles started to come forward. I had, um, I'd always had bouts of depression, anxiety, but somehow in my 20s, they seemed stronger and harder to deal with. And I think that was 
the conflict of trying to push on and forge a life and create a life when underneath everything that had been stitched into my belief system was that I was not good enough and there was something fundamentally flawed about me. And that had been taught to me partly through um, the verbal and emotional um, parenting that I had and, and the relationship that I had with my mother. And I went into teaching when I was 20. So I still, even though I was on my own, I got um, my A-levels and I went and got a degree and then I went into teaching. Um, and that was that was fine. It wasn't what I dreamed of. It wasn't what I what my ambitions were. But I certainly saw my ambitions as silly daydreams and that's how I'd been taught to think of them. And alongside that, I didn't really believe in myself um, to be able to make myself vulnerable enough to go after the big dreams. I think when you're pushing forward for something that you really want, that's harder and scarier than pushing forward for something which, if it all goes wrong, it doesn't really matter. And that's how I felt about teaching. It was, and don't get me wrong, teaching is hard. I do find, I still find it hard work. But if it all went wrong, it, it wouldn't have mattered as much as if my big dreams had all gone wrong. So I sort of, uh, I think I'm a good teacher, but I certainly felt like I was fumbling around. It felt like it broke me sometimes because teaching is hard and there's a lot of showmanship and being real in teaching. Um, a lot of being measured all the time, which I know is is there in all careers to a certain extent. But I felt because I had such low self-worth but could mask it so well, teaching felt very raw for me to, to do at the same time. And I kept on fumbling along. Um, but really, I'd wanted to leave teaching from about three years in. And I thought that that would be my life. You know, that was how I sort of felt life was hard and I didn't quite fit the mold. Um, and I felt like I, I fell short, but I just thought that's what it was. And when I had my son, I was uh, an older mother, I was 37. And when I decided to go for it and have children, that in itself I found really scary as well. And it wasn't until two weeks before he was born that I think I sat happily in the, the idea of being a, being a parent. But as soon as he was here, it was a moment where that was my rebirthing. I suddenly had, the, I thought I knew love, but not love like this. And I, I refer to it as, I felt like I'd been thawed in some way because somehow there was this, this love which was all consuming. And I thought then that everything needed to change because I didn't want... I didn't want him to experience a mother as I had experienced a mother. So those parts of me that were broken, I needed to nurture and face and to a certain extent fix so that he didn't experience that kind of parent. So that was the first step on my rebirthing and rebuilding of myself. And that was all about getting in touch with who I was. There's a lot of shame about things. So there was a lot of self-forgiveness and there still is this is a, a work in progress that I keep working at and another part of it was that I wanted my son to grow up with a parent who modeled to him that every area of life can be enjoyed and he doesn't need to go and do a job which doesn't fulfill him so I also started expanding myself out of teaching and telling myself you don't have to go back if you don't want to now I still do part-time teach now 
but I started retraining in different areas, which I felt aligned to now and passionate about. And I did two years of a counseling diploma. I retrained as a life coach and set up the Happy Wellbeing Club, where I first of all started working with um, women. And then I realized that really what I wanted to do was work with parents and children. And I think it's that um, the wounded part of me wanted to make sure that other people weren't going to be wounded as I felt I had been wounded. So that was the rebirth of what brought me to where I am now. Wow, thank you so much for sharing that. Then there's many aspects of that that I want to kind of dive into and, and I won't dive into all of them, but I want to try and pull out some of the, the threads because I mean, that journey that you've been on from going through your own challenges as a child and the things that that kind of brought out and brought up in you, and then going on this journey of finding yourself again and being afraid of what you might find or being afraid of looking into what you really wanted to do and what you really felt was your pathway, I guess, and finding that it was easier to kind of stay where you felt less afraid because then yeah. there's not so far to fall and I think that lots of us kind of have that similar thought pattern of this feels safe and comfortable and even though I really want the other thing I would prefer to stay safe and comfortable rather than expose myself again to that I think that's sort of the programming that we have and the programming that we go through comes from all different sort of areas doesn't it and and one of them is parenting obviously mm -hmm. as you found and the other one can actually be kind of adults like the teachers in our lives that yeah. we have that can be very influential as well so did your experiences also sort of inform your teaching and the way you wanted to show up as a teacher well I think um certainly more so now when I was uh, when I was a younger teacher, I tr I believed in the education system in a more rock solid way than I believe in it now. I don't like that phrasing, believing in it now. But when I had my son, in fact, when my son went to school, that shifted something in me about how I saw our education system. And I remember years ago, uh, an older teacher who'd been teaching a lot long, longer than I had said to me, when you have children, it makes you a better teacher. And I remember being mortally offended. How can you say just because someone has a child, they're a better teacher. But when he walked into that classroom, suddenly I saw things from a different perspective with a heart. So I never really had a problem before of kids coming in and sitting at a desk for six hours and being expected to listen, learn and take it in. Um, I always had a humanistic desire to support the kids that I had and make them feel good about themselves. I, I always saw teaching as more than just attainment, but I didn't see it in the way that I saw it from that day when my son was four and went in. Because suddenly I didn't like that system suddenly it felt really unfair that my son was going to be measured on his ability to sit down and listen. And I remember saying to him, he mentioned something about, about being a, being good. I think it might've been the good, bad chart on the wall. Don't even get me started on that. And I said, what, what does being good mean? And he did this, he went, sit down, be quiet. And I and sit still, be quiet. But he did it with a smile. And I thought, I don't like that. And, and it, it shifted this feeling, whereas before I was always like, yes, you know, the education system's as good as it can be. And I think that's what's really shifted in my teaching is that I really push in my classroom now, 
and I am very part-time now, blink in the school week and you miss me. But I really push this idea of kids recognizing that they are not a set of subjects and they are not a set of grades. And this idea that they need to be good in all subjects and have a desire to be the best in all subjects isn't realistic. And it's not necessarily about the school, it's about the message that that conveys down to the kids themselves, that they all believe that their sense of well-being, their sense of value comes from something external. They'll be writing, I'm an English teacher, they'll be writing something and they'll call me over and say, Miss, can you read this and tell me if it's any good? And it really annoys them because I'll say, no. I'll say, do you think it's good? Have you tried your best? And you can see it's, they're baffled. They're baffled. Why, why are you asking me? I'm, I'm a student. But I genuinely believe if they're looking at something and they can't say, well, that's the best I can do. If they can't measure themselves, why should I? You know, it doesn't matter what I say. I can tell them a grade for it, but it doesn't matter if I think it's a good piece of work. It matters if they think it's a good piece of work. It matters what they think about themselves. So I try to bring that into my classroom, the idea that it's more important to try at something, try your best and only write five lines is just as good as someone who finds English easy and tries their best and write 40 lines. I don't care. I don't care because we're all different. I care that you are trying your best and you can see how it improved from last time. But I couldn't, and I use this phrase, couldn't give a stuff whether it's five lines or 25 lines, as long as you really have thought about what you're doing and worked hard for 10 minutes and that's it. So that's the way that it's changed. I mean, school for me was my nurturing place. It was my safe place. It was a, it was straightforward. My, my home, I never knew what I was going to get when I walked home. I, I had to be, I now know this, that I developed like this hypervigilance for, for noise and sound, body language. I can read a room. I refer to myself as like Terminator. I walk in this, I can see the programs, right? What's going on, reading everyone's mood. So I know how to be. School wasn't like that. School was my safe place. But I know for a lot of people that I teach and just generally teenagers that school is not their safe place because the mold which school gives you only certain, it's brilliant for certain kids and how they work. And for others, it's not at all. It, it's something where they feel they're always failing. They're always not good enough. And I think I try to be the voice of someone that says, I see you and I see you trying really, really hard. Yeah, I think that self-esteem piece around school is huge and very hard to get right as a teacher whilst you're also trying to like tick all of the boxes, do all of the right things, reach all the targets. It's an incredibly difficult thing to do when it's not individualized enough for you to be able to congratulate or to champion self-worth within every aspect of a child and what they could be good at and what they are excelling at, even if that's something that's not on the curriculum. Yeah. And um, I think you made a really great point about the fact that, you know, these, these are not circumstances that suit everybody, but for you, it was a safe place in comparison to being at home, which didn't feel very safe. Yeah. So um, do you mind sort of sharing a little bit more about what your, circumstances were leading up to you being taken into to care and what that yeah no it's, it's fine so my I if you had looked at my home life from the outside you would you would never have known that anything was wrong um 
my mum was a respected person in the community. It was very much behind closed doors and quite insidious because it's how I'd grown up. So I didn't know there was anything wrong either. The problem was me. I was always the problem. Um, and alongside that, children that grow up in these kind of families or, or particular relationships, it was just my mum and me. That's what I presented to the world as well, that I was the problem. There was no empathy for me, but I had an abundance of empathy for my mum. So if anyone ever said to me, oh, my God, I can't believe she said that to you. I can't believe she did that to you. I would be in defence mode, but you don't understand because I had done this. I X, Y, Z. So it was a very turbulent relationship. Um, and again, from the outside, um, as far as everyone else was aware, I was just your average teenager. I worked well at school. I got really good grades. Um, I had a volatile temper, which again is is quite common in those kind of relationships because I would keep everything in and never, every so often it would break through. But that would just feed into the impression that my mum wanted to give of people that I was a, a problem child. And don't get me wrong, I was a teenager. So there were times that I messed up. There were times that I got it wrong. Absolutely, I was not perfect. Yeah, so in the end, social services uh, came on the scene um, because I, at one point I took an overdose. So then social services got involved. And at that point, then they started monitoring the situation. And then there was a big... Um, confrontation one morning and I went into school and it was my friend who got so upset about it that it was her parents who stepped in and said you're not going home and they took me in then there was a long wait before I got a uh, a foster home and went into foster care there so I think when you are a teenager everything is your norm so everything surface level you just keep going with it it's you numb out and it's not until you are older or well, I'll own this, stop saying you. It's not until I was older that I started to be aware of the damage, but I'm talking about, I was, I was aware of damage. It was turbulent. I don't have a mum. It wasn't until my thirties and even my forties, particularly now in the last six years with all the training I've done, I say it's like reading a manual on myself. Ah, I react like that because of what happened there. Oh, I've learned those messages. I mean, there was, it's very, very subtle stuff. Some of it is is direct. She used to say to me that I will spend my whole life on my own. No one will ever love me. But then there would be just the tiny things all, all the time that then become stitched into your belief. So you can be told something, but it's all the stuff you don't see that, that creates who you are. So when I had my son and I said I didn't want him to have a relationship like I had with my mum, I realised one of the things that, she really struggled with was I truly believe that she didn't really like who she was either but maybe she wasn't self-aware enough to deal with it didn't want to face those things and there and if she had said which is how I am now with my son if I lose my temper I realized that me losing my temper is totally my issue he might have done something wrong wrong um, let's say, you know, he's, I've asked him 20 times to put his shoes on and I lose my temper. Me losing my temper is totally my issue. It's nothing to do with the shoes. In order to do that, I need to be able to realise and accept that I'm not perfect. And I think it was too much for my mum to be able to face herself.
-hmm. And that meant that it was a very triggered relationship all the time, but those triggers were put on me. So there was a lot of guilting, a lot of shame. It's guilty, verb. Guilt and shame put onto me. So part of my rebirthing was being able to face myself, unpick those triggers, and then try to heal and or soothe those triggers. I think it's about soothing those things because you will never fix trauma, but you can learn to stand alongside it and put your arm around it and say, it's all right, you did all right. And I think that's what I'm trying to do. And it's a work in progress. And that's why I've taken it on to start creating this coaching business with parents. Because I think there are a lot of parents out there who are at the end of their tether and they're triggered all the time and they're yelling and they don't want to be this parent. They want to be connected with their kids, but they don't know how. And I think there is this process of learning how to do it, learning how to be yourself and be with others in a way which is authentic and centered and rooted uh, and, and the level of self-forgiveness that comes with that. You know, when you become a parent, mine are 19 and four. And um, when you become a parent and you're going on that journey with them as they're getting older, you are seeing them going through these rebirthing processes. You know, they are becoming a different person. They are growing and evolving and changing. And you are standing alongside this process and you're changing dynamic alongside that. So your relationship is changing. They're changing. You're changing as a result of that because you're learning about who you need to be now in relationship to them as they change and grow. And it's this constant evolution. And I think it's wonderful if you sort of embrace that. But at the same time, it's hard because you come across these things where you're not sure what to do next and you're not sure how to respond to these new things that are coming up for them because we don't have all of the answers, of course, mm. and of course we're not perfect, but they are looking for us to be able to stand alongside them steadily as they grow and change and be that kind of like safety net, that stake in the ground yeah. where they know that they can come back and, and feel safe. And I think that, you know, rebirth happens as a parent often you're constantly kind of rebirthing as a parent um has that been your experience as well with people that you're working with that they're constantly having to evolve alongside that yeah I think I think where the conflict comes in with a lot of parents that I've worked with is that they aren't evolving and you use the word there which I love the words which I loved the phrase of standing alongside you see I think when we parent small children we are the container and we keep them safe by being over like their umbrella. And I think the clashes start with tweens and into the teenage years because they want to find out who they are. And the best way to find out who you are is who you're not. And who, how do you do that? You compare yourself to the closest people, which is why suddenly you are not cool, mum. You're not cool, dad. And if we're trying to parent them in that container, there's just this massive clash. And I think one of the first, not the first thing, but one of the processes which parents have to work through is releasing that and coming to stand alongside and seeing themselves outside of the circle of that individual starting to see their child as individual for parents that can bring up so much stuff anyway because we've had for a number of years our identity aligned with that person and now we are separate and for a lot of women particularly because I think we give up our lives a little bit more than men do in those early years that can bring up a lot in terms of our own triggers and our own 
fundamental belief systems. But when we stand alongside them, so we're not trying to control them, that in itself changes the dynamics of how we parent. So we have this rebirth throughout where we have to start thinking, like you said, how do I handle this now? And part of that is becoming the coach to the tween or teen rather than the um, the person who's going to tell you what to do. The best parenting through through those ages to get collaborative relationships with the kids and the parents is to ask them and listen to them and give them that space. And the more we do that, the more they align you as their safe space, the more they talk to you, the more that trust is there. They're still going to mess up. You're still going to get triggered. They're still going to you know, erupt. They're teenagers. They're allowed. It strengthens that connection, strengthens that relationship, and you will have a calmer house. And you will long-term reap the dividends of that control of self, of being able to sit in the discomfort of wanting to keep you safe, but having to allow you to go into the world and make those mistakes. Because that's how kids learn to build internal validation. I'm okay. I messed up, but I'm okay. Rather than constantly seeking it out someone else to tell them that they're okay. Yeah, I think it's how they learn to trust themselves as well. And, you know, we were talking about the sort of the teaching side of things and the parenting side of things. And it is this thing of like, how do you um, empower children and teenagers particularly to be able to trust themselves. And the only way you get to do that is to say, is to pass it back to them and say, well, what do you think? And how do you feel about that? And embedding in them this sense of like, I do have an internal sense of what I feel, what feels good and what doesn't feel good. And I feel safe enough to be able to explore that, express that, talk to you about that as my parent. And for that to be a conversation that we can have, not a conversation that's shut down because you're afraid as my parent of what that means Mm. if I decide to go ahead with a choice you don't like. And I think that offering children trust all the way through and using questioning as a way to sort of open things up is incredibly powerful. And I think it's um, incredibly successful as Mm. as a way of um, allowing children to trust themselves. I think one of the difficult bridges between young children and older children is that when they're children, we tell them exactly what to do all the time. And therefore, they don't they don't look to their gut instinct. They look to us Mm -hmm. and parents, because ultimately what most parents are motivated by is 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 fear for their kids. So we're still stepping in, but we need to build that trust of gut instinct. And this is slightly off on tangent, but what has always appeared quite dangerous to me with with teenagers young teenagers is that we don't we talk to them about consent all the time with sex and uh, and sexual education but we've spent years steering their gut instinct for them don't give in to your gut instinct and then suddenly they're in these intimate situations and let's say that someone's gut instinct is red flagging oh this doesn't feel comfortable but they're constantly they've been bought brought up to sort of think about external validation so well but I'm I'm supposed to be doing this it's okay I'll just keep on going and I you know maybe I'm talking about me when I was a teenager there but I certainly was caught in these situations of what I should do be doing and what I ought to be doing even though my gut instincts were saying this isn't this doesn't feel right get out of here this doesn't feel right but I would keep going with things and I think I've used a rather obscure example there but I think that's how dangerous it can get if we don't bring our children up 
with this reflective questioning of, oh, right, so what were you thinking when you did that? And what would the consequences be of that? How would that work out? What do you think they're thinking? Teenagers' brains are still building themselves. So they don't have the wiring of the brain like we do to look into consequences and make what we would call rational decisions. So it's our job to help them build those bridges. And we do that by modeling. And then that stretches into all areas of their teenage lives. You know, come on, drink this, everyone else is doing it, or take this, everyone else is doing it, or go with him or her, everyone else is doing it. And rather than thinking, yeah, but I don't feel like doing it, we go, well, if the others are doing it, I'll do it then, yeah, I'll do it. And I think that's a dangerous place to be. So for me, it all comes back to, and I'm not laying the blame with myself as a parent or, or parents, but we have such responsibility as parents to shape the world and shape the brain of our children and their expectations of themselves. And we can do that simply by the way that we communicate with them in a really positive way so that they learn to look to themselves first, look to us as the safe space to be when it all goes wrong or the place to be to celebrate stuff. But it's that wiring that they come first, be in touch with yourself, not what authority figures told you that you should be or ought to be. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, my eldest is a, a boy and my youngest is a girl. And I think for me, I've been um, more concerned about raising a girl in some ways because I have my own stuff mixed in with that of like, I know what it's like to be a girl. I know what I was like as a girl. I know how the things that I found challenging and one of those things was that whole people pleasing, you know, mm. you need to do what you are told. You need to make sure that people like you. You need to be polite, all of those kind of things. And, you know, there's a place for politeness, of course. Um, but I think that for me, there is this sort of thing of like, okay, I need to get this right. Like I need to make sure that she's checking in with herself. You know, what, what, what feels right? Do you want this? Do you not want this? You know, what, how do you feel? all of those kind of things. And so I think we definitely sort of layer our own experiences onto the experience that our children are gonna have. And one of the things you sort of said, which I think is incredibly um, normal, is that when we have our own children, we, I think that, we, well, I think I'm right in saying there is an element of wanting to correct the mistakes that our parents made. Like we want to make sure that that experience is different. And I think that what then naturally happens, of course, is that we don't do those things that we didn't want to bring into the experience of our parenting as of our own children. But we bring in other stuff that we're less aware of at, at the same time. I think one of the, you know, you mentioned that you did the sort of counsellor training and um, I did the, uh, trained as a, a psychotherapist and uh, that training was very, very eye-opening for me. And I did it when I was, uh, I was, quite young so I was 21 when I started the training straight after uni and it was hugely eye-opening to be in a space where you are asked to face yourself all the time you know constantly face yourself face your fears face what's going on and it was overwhelming and pretty scary a lot of the time but I learned a huge amount about how much I wanted to people please all the time and how much I found it difficult to say no to things yeah. that I didn't want in my life and I think that if you don't have that training and if you don't have um, exposure to adults who are 
talking about those things or who are open to talking about those things and you don't have mentors in your teachers and things like that then you need other resources and you need other places to sort of find yeah. these things out and of course the work that you're doing is very fundamental in supporting that and I know that you are releasing a book as well as a resource and a tool for people to be able to sort of learn more about this do you want to yeah. talk a bit about that yeah so I I've written a book called dream big think limitless and it's for teenagers um I suppose borderline tweens as well and really this the surface of it is how to um, hone down to what you really want to do in life or an area where you want to work in life because I think that teenagers or young people certainly I felt like this we have a concept of what it is to be successful and that is taught to us in the ideologies from the media, education, our parents. And I think most of us don't really get in touch with, yeah, but is that what I want to do? Is that the thing that's gonna light me up? And that, you know, side note, I think that when I became a coach, the first people that I worked with were midlife women who weren't happy with their world and wanted to shift something. And that I came back to working on this idea of, teenagers because of this point because I thought if we could actually nail this in the way that we parent teenagers and now I've written this book so that they grow up not thinking they need to people please and fulfill the success criteria of the world but actually get in touch with what do I enjoy what comes easily to me what fulfills my value system and create this idea of a big dream and then learn how to plan to get to where they want to be but alongside that, the book actually takes them on a journey, first of all, of unpicking what's their version of success. Take away all of those voices, the, the authority voices. What is it that you want? How are you going to measure that? And I go into the brain science of why our brains work from a place of fear and why they're actually going to keep you going back to those authority figures who tell, tell you, oh, yeah, but that's the better thing to do. Uh, then planning the big dream. And and talking about how to silence that inner critic that's going to whisper in your ear. You know, when you come up with that great idea of run a cattery, that's, that'll be amazing. And then there's a voice saying, yeah, that's rubbish, isn't it? You're going to be awful at that. And how to sidestep it. Because I think teenagers, all of us, but teenagers especially, they're growing their identity, but they don't quite understand that a lot of that identity is shaped by the outside world, not authentic to them. And that those thoughts they hear in their head aren't truth, but they just take them on as truth all the time. And then once they've got their big dream, it talks about all the things that are going to come up again to try and shut them down, like overwhelm and procrastination, so that they stop in their tracks and go back to the safe zone. So yeah, I wrote this book. There's lots of tasks in it as a workbook as well to try to help kids so that when they have finished the book, not only do they have an idea of what they want to do, but they have a clear idea of who they are. What an amazing resource. I mean, if if you'd, I mean, when I was at school, we had access to like, you know, careers advisors who basically would sort of say, you know, well, out of all of the professions that are available, this one seems most like you. And it never was. I was like, you don't know me at all. <laughs> um, and to be able to have something that early on and is targeted at that age range to say, you know, here's how you can figure out a little bit more about yourself would have been amazing because I just spent so long thinking, you know, what am I, what am I good at? What do I want to do? And and feeling like I didn't have an answer. Mm. And, and I think that, you know, the people around us aren't that equipped to be able to help us with mm. that either, because that's not the the aim of school in, in essence, it's sort of to pump you with information rather than figure out who you are. Yeah. 
I suppose uh, it's supposed to soften the edges of school that way and, and, and work for all the people that school doesn't fit. And it does address the idea as well that we're all told, you know, what do you want to do? What do you want to do? Who knows what they want to do? I'm 45. I don't know what I want to do by the time I'm 50. And it sort of counterbalances that of just, it's not saying think of a job. It's think, think of all the things that would be in this area that encapsulates, you know, your joy, your flow, the things that are easy, the thing, the things that you like, and then start working through them until something fits. I love that. I absolutely love that. My, uh, my son has always known what he wants to do, which I think is in, it, very rare. And I'm very jealous because mm. he's just always been very, very set on it. And so he got started early. So he, he you know, he's ahead of the curve. And I think that sometimes if you already know that there's something that you really enjoy and you really in love, but there isn't a lot of encouragement around you to be able to do more of that or to celebrate that or to learn a little bit more about those things, then it's quite easy to sort of shut those dreams down in a box and wait for the right time. Yeah. Well, I think that message as well, that someone will come and present that to you because education kind of suggests if you do this, this and this, Mm -hmm. then you'll get X at the end. And most people who go through that, not everyone, but most people do A-levels, do a degree and then come out the other side and go, what now? There's no one here to welcome me with my dream job. Yeah. I wondered when I heard you then about your son and he knew what to do, I wondered how much of that is because he had a parent like you and just what you, how you have spoken about your parenting and your approach and the reflective questioning and, and possibly saying to, pointing out these open avenues to him. Because I have noticed in my 20 years that the kids who are focused on something that they specifically want and start moving towards it way before they finish school usually come from families or parents who have made it feel possible. And all of those, because I've tracked them, are working in their dream sort of fields. And I think that's because they had that plan. That's why the book isn't just like come up with an idea. It's then now let's break it down into things that you can start doing now if you want to, that will therefore give you a greater avenue to pursue that when you're older or give you more experience, even if that experience is just to go, oh, actually, this sucks. I don't want to do this. Yeah. And and I think you know, there is a point there as well. And th uh, thank you for the parenting comment and uh, and I hope that that is how I've parented it's certainly how I wanted to parent but I think that you know there is a point as well where you need to be able to have permission to put stuff down that didn't fit yeah so I think sometimes we kind of go along this trajectory and it sort of gathers momentum and and then if you realize at some point like I don't actually I'm not in love with this anymore I want to go and do something different that you also have permission to put it down and go and do something else and I think sometimes you know when you sort of see parents who are uh have children who are excelling in something and their momentum and their identity is very much caught up in that and the parents identity as well and it's very hard for the child to be able to put that thing down because yeah. it's become so important for everybody around them well I was just about to say there's that people pleasing again though isn't it because yeah, it's become yeah. important to everyone around them because somehow the people around them are measuring themselves on that child and that is where that sitting in the discomfort is of being able and none of us enjoy it but being able to let the child do and be even if it doesn't align to what you want you know I'm not obviously I'm not saying let them go feral and make ridiculous um decisions but you know, they want to give something up that you know long-term would be amazing for them. But if they're not enjoying it, that's your problem. That's your stuff to sort out. You know, let them know that it's okay. 
and and in extreme cases let them know it's okay to fail you know some people think that if you have a go at something and you don't see it through to the end it's a failure no it's not if you can say actually not loving this anymore it's making me feel bad that's a win because you're looking to yourself and going no it's not for me I'm going to start something else and kids change all the time so what they want to do when they're 14 is going to be different when they're 14 in three months because they're a different person in three months yes yeah absolutely absolutely I'm trying to think back to, to sort of my earliest thing of what I wanted to do and I think I think I probably I probably sort of aligned along the way to what I wanted to do in the first place, which was always sort of quite entrepreneurial and and you know wanting to do different things. So I suppose I have followed that trajectory. Those early ideas of what you want to do sometimes do have threads of something that will be carried through in later yeah. life, but the thread that you go along doesn't have to be the thread that you end up leaving yeah. uh, your final destination from. But part of that is um, you know kids. When I was leaving school, I thought you either went into a job like teacher, lawyer, something you know, named, or you go in the corporate world. That was it. There was nothing else. Because you, we didn't have, I don't, didn't have at that time enough knowledge of the world to be able to make decisions on that. And, and we forget that about kids, that they don't have all the knowledge that we have. So it's highly likely that the kind of things they want to do, they'll end up using those skills, but it might not be in the way that they first thought that that was the only way that they could use those skills you know kids your podcast is about rebirthing and I think that we don't we think about I think when I say we I think I'm talking about society we think about childhood as one thing and you're birthed at the end of it yeah but actually their brains are changing so much so frequently I mean from like 12 to 14 they're brain is completely rebuilding itself that's why they need to be asleep all the time let them sleep they are a different person they're rebirthing over and over again I mean year seven girls come in they've rebirthed by the time they come back at year eight you know they've, they've rebirthed as someone seven years older it seems sometimes and we need to allow them to do that and to to sit in the place of I need to get to know you again because you, yes. you're different you know they could wake up two weeks later and be different again and that's also okay because it's they're trying on they're trying on personalities what fits what doesn't fit who am I it's complicated it's hard and but it's a beautiful journey if we try and step back and walk alongside them rather than be in it with them and steering them yes yes um, I couldn't agree more um Katie it has been absolutely joyous to talk to you and Thank you so much for sharing your story, sharing your work and an insight into your work, because I know that everything that you've spoken about is going to be really helpful to people listening as well. Um, and we will put a link to your book so that people can go and find that, because I think it sounds like an incredible resource. Thank you. Thank you so much for being on today. Thank you. I've enjoyed it. It's been lovely. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And I will link to Katie's book so that you can find out more. And we will see you again on the next episode. Thank you for listening. If you're enjoying this podcast, why not download the Womb app? It's going to help you to understand what a rebirth is and how to have one for yourself. Join in the chat rooms, download the materials and programs and get monthly coaching and monthly networking, all for the price of $6.99 a month. Download now in the App Store or Google Play Store.